Hi, I'm Dee Reddy, and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week's episode is almost my last for the podcast, as I'll be finishing up today after two really great years with the company. So, with that in mind, we thought it would be nice to share a compilation of some of my favourite guests, hosts and interviews from my time here. In this period, I've been fortunate enough to chat to a really wide range of interesting people from across the world of tech, SaaS and beyond. There's too many highlights to fit into one episode, of course, but I've chosen a selection of conversations that have stayed with me and which represent a cross-section of the topics we've covered on the podcast. First up, we have Alex Wolf, the self-described consumer-facing anthropologist who is on a mission to encourage engineers and designers to create more harmonious technologies, ones that enhance rather than exploit the human condition. In this piece, Alex shares how she first identifies what she now considers to be a very real problem with the attention economy. Yeah, so it really started when I noticed how differently people, particularly in in my generation, millennial generation, I don't know if you're a part of our gang, but um, we, okay, great. I started to notice how, you know, people would get treated differently depending on what their social status was on these social platforms. Um, I even started to notice the nature of events were very much changing, where what mattered more was how the event translated into KPIs and into these digital metrics, as opposed to having a good time and how those things don't always match up. We tend to try to find a metric that can represent some type of value, but oftentimes, I think particularly in in social technology, these metrics don't represent what we think they do. For example, a like, you know, is a very uh, everyday example, doesn't always mean a like. So once I started to see these nuances, I very much had this feeling that we were kind of, you know, fish that didn't know we were in water. That type of analogy where things are changing so fast and I felt that most people were not sensitive to how fast those things were changing. Again, with language, um, with millennials communicating and how most of our communication was being done through text messaging, which is very different from how our parents and our grandparents grew up socializing. So I just couldn't help but, you know, kind of wonder and be fascinated about how are these differences in our social landscape, in our relationships, how are they going to affect us as people? And how much is it going to actually negatively impact us? And so I wanted to write and write and write about it. And the more I did research about writing, the more I figured out that people were having a difficult time reading, which again, research has shown and and is pointing towards the fact that a lot of the reason why people are having difficulty reading is because their eyes are so used to the stimulation of moving images, uh, different images, And if you compare that to words on a page, which are pretty complicated little, you know, dark characters that your brain has to take extra effort in to interpret, it's not really a fair race, right? (laughs) The eyes will gravitate towards the moving image, the spectacle, if you will. And I realized that, you know, wow, how is this going to impact politics? How is this going to impact the ability to have deeper conversations, reflection? How does this threaten intellectualism? And so I ended up being so worried and concerned about it. I made a a 15-minute documentary 
which that was supposed to be a book, but that's the irony of studying mediums is that you have to be just as clever about which medium you deliver <laughs> the material in. And so I realized unless I try to say this in 15 minutes or less through a visual medium, you know, there's a closing door that if I don't squeeze my message in before it shuts, you know, and the, the closing door, in my opinion, is the attention span, which keeps shortening every year. So all of these are effects of technology. And, um, you know, for the most part, I think that once we do realize we're fish in water and this water does have an, an effect on us, I've, I've noticed that people are very interested and want to learn more about it, which has been nice. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, actually, because one thing I did actually notice when I was watching the Attention for Sale documentary was how often you cut away to short, sharp, uh, visual, uh, moving images. Um, mm-hmm. So and, and you become more aware of it as the documentary goes on and, act, and as you're taking in the importance of what you're saying. Right. Another point I'd love to share with you, actually, is obviously given the nature of what I do, I've always been a big advocate for audio as a medium, just as a standalone medium, because it's always Mm -hmm. kind of felt to me that it has more similar impact on your brain Mm -hmm. reading than, say, watching something because only one of your senses is being engaged. So Mm -hmm. your, your brain is forced to fill in the gaps and it engages your imagination, which means that you remember it a bit more and maybe have a deeper connection to it. Yeah, I, audio is kind of a happy medium in the sense that, um, you know, it's it's still based on words for the most part, as opposed to visuals. And most of the time when people listen to audio, they are intentionally engaged in some type of activity that is stimulating the eyes. You know, most people drive when they're listening to podcasts or, you know, they're working out or they're doing something to entertain the eyes, which takes the burden off of the person who is making the audio because that burden then goes to the listener. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned the millennial generation there a little bit earlier. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about that because you've kind of posited that our relationship with visual stimuli has kind of Mm -hmm. created a generation who, because of our mostly digital adult experiences, really have a skewed perception of time and, and reality. So how mm-hmm. and why do you think this has happened? Yeah, so in a nutshell, the more stimuli you're exposed to, the quicker time feels. You know how they say time flies when you're having fun, right? So right now, most of our environments within our homes and pretty much in general are filled with not just stimuli, but hyper stimuli, especially in comparison to, you know, what our ancestors were exposed to. So a lot of our senses have sort of been nubbed down into these insensitive receptors that just need more and more to feel something. And this, of course, has all types of anthropological effects. And I think the question is, do we seek to serve it by giving it even more hyperstimuli as an attempt to feel something? Or do we, you know, try to restore their sensitivity by refraining from so much stimulation to begin with so we can feel more um, by being in in environments with less? That makes a lot of sense. And I guess, especially with everything that's happened in the world over the last kind of six months, anyway, this year, it's spread wider than millennials now because 
everybody is engaged with their screen all the time. They're, you know, they're working from home. In some cases, it's the only way to socialize. There was a really interesting piece in The Guardian a couple of months ago that kind of showed how lockdown is affecting our perception and Mm -hmm. understanding of time. And that kind of aligns with a lot of your theories. So what sort of kind of fallout, I guess, can we expect from this period where we're being forced into the screen more and more? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, again, consider the context of our environments. And right now we live in a culture of what I call has like an obsessive blind technophilia, basically meaning we adopt tech with somewhat of, you know, of an obsession and don't do much analysis on predicting at least some of its consequences. You know, there'll always be unintended consequences with technology, but we can start to ask questions and I hope, you know, given where we are now, we we incorporate those more. So I think that one of the main ways we can start to, I guess, not be so negatively impacted by, you know, so much screen time is focusing on how to shift this attention economy, which relies on our impulses and our inability to look away um, and exploiting our our eyeballs to want to gravitate towards, you know, sensation and spectacle to going into an economy where we really are, instead of trading our attention, we're trading our dollars um, and not relying on a third party to create all this stimulation for us, but seeking, you know, quality whether it be journalism, news, entertainment, and making the conscious decision to actually pay for those things, which I do see happening little by little. An aspect of producing this podcast that I've particularly enjoyed is the opportunity it's afforded me to earwig on some of the brightest minds the company has to offer. Episodes that allow us to look under the hood at Intercom always do really well with our audience, so I know I'm not alone in this. Here's a piece from a conversation between one of our co-founders, Kieran Lee, and our principal machine learning engineer, Fergal Reed, which we recorded to coincide with the release of Resolution Bot early last year. I remember it being a bit of an emotional roller coaster the first time we were <laughs> shipping this product, like how hard it is to make something that is easy to use in this space. And one really interesting thing I remember is we had this idea initially that you know, we would build a bot that would answer customers' common questions. And we assumed people would know what their common questions were. We assumed that we would know what our common questions were. Right. And we found out that we didn't. Yes. Yeah, it's, th- it's hard. <laughs> this is actually, yeah, this is quite a, a controversial time internally um, in the development of the product. And um, when we built the first alpha version, um, and it just worked for Intercom, for our own customer support team, um, you know, we built this sort of like clustering tool and it was super crude, um, but it's really, really very basic, ugly clustering tool that would uh, would attempt to like kind of cluster your questions uh, to figure out, you know, what intercoms, common support questions were. And we did that because I think maybe it was me and maybe you and one of the other people in the team were the only people kind of configuring the bot uh, for intercom at that point. And we didn't know what our most common questions were. And, you know, when you have a big enough hammer, everything looks like a nail. We decided to throw some data at the problem and, and see if we could use machine learning to, to try and discover those questions. And, and it kind of worked, but it was just something that was suitable for, for use as an internal tool. And when the time came to actually develop the product in, in full production for real, 
there was a lot of controversy initially, just different opinions internally about and very healthy debates about, you know, did we actually need to build something like this? Did we need to like give people that leg up? And you know, some of some of the people at Intercom were like, well, you know, our customers are going to know their top 10 questions. And, you know, our customers, they're answering questions all the time or they're managing a support team. They have a pretty good idea what their most common questions are, but they don't necessarily know or they can't just write down if you give them a blank screen how all the different ways that their users ask those questions. And that's what the bot needs. It's not enough that the bot needs to know that one of the common questions is like, I need to reset my credit card. They need to know, the bot needs to be told all the different ways people can ask that. And that if someone comes along and says like, hey, my account is locked and I can't spend any money. And that like, you know, if you're a company where when someone asks that, that is a question about credit cards, uh, you want to be able to tell the bot that because the machine learning system can't just know that automatically. It needs to be told that. And so actually discovering and finding sort of the different ways people ask those common questions, you know, takes time. And, and then we built this curation tool that would enable you to search how all your users have asked those questions in the past. And that was really, I think, the, the breakthrough moment in the development of sort of the curation experience of our, our, our NLP bots that really enabled uh, people to actually go from, you know, staring at a blank canvas, you know, with a pretty good idea of what they wanted the bot to answer, but not really sure how to proceed from there, to actually like, you know, getting started and to like saying, yeah, this is a good example of when the bot's asking that. No, that's not a good example. And and, and to really configuring, you know, pretty big bot installs that would... Uh, would, would, would do a lot of resolutions and, yeah, and answer a lot of people's questions quickly. Another thing I found fascinating is, I don't know exactly how to describe this, but differences in the language space between different customers of ours. Right. Intercom is not an ideal candidate for resolution, but right. we have a very broad product with lots of different features and yeah. a lot of people use it, use different parts of it and they ask us questions about every part of this large product with a large surface area. Yeah. And then we have other customers who have a lot of customers themselves, in some cases a lot more than we do, but they have simpler products. I'm thinking airlines, power companies, more well understood businesses with a smaller uh, surface area, at least in terms of the products that their customers interact with. And we see different resolution bot performance across these different types of customers. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely the case. And, you know, this is something that uh, risked misleading us a little bit at the start. You know, our first customer is often ourselves because it's just easy to run the beta and, you know, we can have a really close relationship with our support team when we're doing the earliest, most risky product development. But, you know, one thing to be careful of is that like Intercom is, is a big product. And I think another part of it is that our our users, our customers are pretty sophisticated. They're spending a lot of time in that product. If I'm, you know, have a relationship with my utility company, my electricity company, say, I'm not like spending my working day in that electricity company's product. I probably don't even know it that well. It's very easy for me to get lost in their web interface. And so, you know, if I'm an end user, I might come and I'd be like, oh, I've, I have a meter reading or I have a problem with my bill. And, you know, the electricity company probably gets that same question, you know, tens of thousands of times a day. Intercom, we don't get, not so many questions, we get tens of thousands of times a day. And so, you know, initially 
you know, when we were set, when we were doing this sort of internal version of, of the first round of our bots, we were like, gosh, you know, it takes an awfully long time to, to really get like high coverage, to really get it to the point where you've curated like, you know, 30%, 50% of, of all your incoming questions. And then we discovered when we did beta with some of our customers that it's completely different. And I, I think you mentioned it there, that the conversational space is different because we, we really think about, you know, that there's sort of this, this, this space of questions that you have and, you know, things that are interesting are like, how big are the biggest groups of questions in that space? Like is the single biggest kind of topic that people ask you about, does that cover 1% of your total inbound volume of questions or does it cover 30% of your total inbound volume of questions? Because the sort of the, the return on investment of a bot is going to completely depend based on those sort of those dynamics. And we've done a lot of work on this internally in Intercom now. We've actually quantified for a lot of our different customers looking at their data, sort of the, the distribution of, of that space. And so it absolutely is something that varies from customer to customer. Uh, we always see that, you know, creating more answers will always sort of increase your coverage. And so we always encourage our customers to do that. But the reality is that the level of return of each additional answer you create is just going to vary from customer to customer. Some customers have relatively easy domains, some customers have harder domains. And um, that's really been a journey for us to kind of to, to understand that. And, you know, we, we have to be careful anytime we make any change to our bot technology, we have to make sure that it works for all of our customers, that it never degrades the performance of any one of these customers that has a very different domain. I guess a related thing that we discovered is some customers have an easier space in terms of natural language processing. There's some customers where, you know, particular words are just very strongly identify what the end user is asking about. And if you have a product, let's say your product is called Resolution Bot, and you have a customer that comes along and, you know, asks a question about a Resolution Bot, you're pretty damn sure what they're asking about. But, you know, another intercom product is Messages. Someone comes along and asks an intercom conversation about messages. That's harder because you know a lot of people talk to us about messages in a lot of different contexts, and some of our customers just have these relatively easy spaces that are just a great fit for NLP. Answerbot or Resolution Bot will work almost out of the box. Other customers, it's just harder. They're just going to require more time and more effort. You can still get there, but you need a bigger volume of questions, bigger volume of you know, inbound conversations each month for the ROI calculation to make the same amount of sense. So yeah, it absolutely varies from customer to customer. As much as we love the opportunity to zoom in on Intercom on the podcast, we also like to zoom out from time to time and take a proper look at the tech ecosystem that we're part of. Sometimes doing this can lead you to some unfortunate truths. Working in a tech company is a pretty privileged position to be in overall. For our guest, Catherine Finney, the author, futurist and entrepreneur, that's actually okay, so long as you use that position to help others along the way. You know, I think there's a tendency for us to only look ahead of us, to see who's ahead of us, and not to look to see how many people we're actually ahead of. And there's a, a story that I tell about a friend of mine who contacted me post our presidential election in 2016. There was a lot of people when our current president was elected that had, a, it was a real shock for a lot of Americans. Mm. 
it really, really was. And people started to examine like what happened. How did we get here? And I think globally, everyone's kind of facing that. I know in, in parts of the EU, people are facing like, how did we get here? Because I thought we were doing so well. And now we're like in a totally different place. And so a friend of mine, who's a very successful white guy, venture capitalist, called me and was like, I don't know what to do, Catherine. I mean, this is like, you know, and I gave him like two minutes because I'm like, you still are privileged. You'll be very okay. <laughs> like, But I gave him two minutes to, you know, kind of express himself. And then I said to him, you have a birthright. You're, you're kind of like Prince Harry, right? No matter what Prince Harry does, he's always going to be a royal. And people are going to always treat him as a royal. He can't give that back. It is his birthright. He was born into it. When you are a white male, particularly a white male with a high economic status in the United States, you have a birthright. People are going to give you privileges that you don't even have to ask for. It doesn't matter what you may think. They're going to give it to you automatically. And I think this is true around the globe. It's true in the EU and other parts of the world. You're going to get this. They're going to give it to you. And so the question is, what do you do with it? Because you have it. You can't give it back. They're going to give it to you. So what do you do with it? And you have a choice. You can use that privilege and power to bring other people with you. There are rooms that you will get in that someone like me will never be invited to. It doesn't matter how amazing and great I am. I will never be invited. There is monies that you're going to get that I will never, ever be able to get. Or for me to get it, it will be just virtually impossible. We saw that here in the United States with the dissemination of the PP loans and other the economic recovery loans. So use your power. And what he said to me, the response was really shocking to me because I had never thought of it this way because again, I see the world as a black woman, right? So I never thought of what he shared to me in his way. And he said, you know, I am always looking forward. I see that I'm not Steve Jobs. So I don't think in relation to Steve Jobs that I'm powerful, that I have money or anything because I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not Bill Gates. I never took a moment to look behind and to see how far ahead I was of other people. Wow. I never took the moment to turn around and say, oh my God, like I have a huge amount of privilege because I'm always facing forward and seeing that I'm not him. But I never looked behind and said, well, I'm so much further than her. And I think that that story illustrates we are all, we all have positions of privilege. It may not even just be race. It may be gender, it may be race, it may be class, it may be sexual orientation. We all have it. And so the question is, what do we do with it? How do we help others? And it could be something as small as, you know, retweeting for the next year in your social media account only you know, women founders or black women founders. There's a, one of the CEOs of Glitch, which is a tech company here based in the United States. His name is Anil Dash. And Anil's a really well-known um, tech leader. For a whole year on his Twitter account, he only retweeted women. That's it. He wouldn't retweet anybody else but women. And that's something relatively small, right? It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost any money. But The fact that he did that inspired so many other people to do that. The fact that he did that, women like myself, who was a beneficiary of him retweeting, gained all of these new founders, followers who 
were able to follow what I was saying, to be participating in conversations with me, people and connections I would have never gotten out of this one real simple act. So it doesn't mean necessarily writing checks, although that needs to happen too. It also means just simply maybe saying, you know, for the next six months, I'm only going to retweet, you know, Black leaders. That's it, because I know the people reading me may not have have exposure. They may need a bridge. They may not understand. So I'm going to take it on myself to make sure that I'm that bridge. But it's like, it's such a simple thing that people can do. Just check who's behind you. And just remember, there are, you have a birthright. And, and what it means with the birthright too is that I think there's sometimes a lot of shame and fear and confusion when you are a white person and what to do with your whiteness, right? And sometimes, particularly in the United States, it, it comes off as, oh my God, well, you know, let me just entrench myself in this position instead of thinking, you know what, I do have power and privilege and I can't really get rid of it because people give it to me whether I want it or not. So how do I use it? What can I do? Because you can do something. You're not powerless. Um, You can do something in this. If you have the financial means, you can invest. Please invest in people of color founders. I would love to see and hear an investor who's like, for the next year, the only thing I'm going to invest in are Black founders. That's it. I'm not going to invest in anyone else but Black founders. And I want to see what happens. You can do that. Or you can just say, for the next three months, I'm only going to retweet, you know, women-led startups, or I'm only going to retweet Black founders or Latino founders or Indian founders or whatever it may be, you can do that. You can do something. It is easy. It doesn't cost you anything. It does not remove your position to be generous and to participate. And it's good for you. Recording Intercom on product often feels to me like I'm sitting in on a private conversation between two friends probably because it kind of is. Over 14 episodes, Des and Paul have shared their expertise and insights on everything from product judgment to road mapping to the power of feedback. Here's a snippet from one of my favourite episodes from them when they discussed innovation. The idea is like, it just needs to be like manic aggression of innovation. It's like it needs to be just consistently better stuff coming all the time. When we talk about like the Kano model, interestingly enough to me, crosses with the idea we spoke about earlier which is this long road to the starting line so you mentioned how like an email client you basically have to do so much work before you can even add a single even a trivial innovation has to sit on top of maybe one to two years worth of roadmap before you're even noteworthy i think what happens there is most of our listeners will be familiar with the Kana model the idea that there are, generally speaking, three areas of work. There are table stakes, as in the things that you must have, and no one will ever thank you for having them. There are what's called performance things, which will be, if you do it really well, it's valued. If you do it really badly, it's not. And then there are like delighters, the things that only you do that you, that, I, that genuinely thrill your customers. And what the Kano model says is that anything that delights your customers over time will become copied by all, all your competitors And then it will just be a question of who does it best. So it becomes a performant feature. And then over time, all performant features standardize on what the highest acceptable standard is. And then they just become table stakes, at which point there's just a certain way to do it at a certain quality. And I think if you take a really mature software category, like say uh, email, 
what we've seen is, or you can take project management as another like well-trodden uh, sort of area here. What we've seen over time is anything that was delightful became standard, standardized, and then it became a performant feature. And then over time, it became a table stake. And do that for like 20 years. And what you have is a really thick layer of table stakes, which means that for you right to go and start a new product in this category, the like foundations are so deep and the required execution is so high quality that it'll be a long time before we can do anything. And that's ultimately why, like, if you take something like, say, Superhuman, or even like take like a Linear, who are probably going to push in on the Jira space, they have been in like this insane private beta mode for so long because there's just so many areas where they need to like outperform in order to even break through the noise and be like, not just another email client, not just another task management product or whatever. I think it's wise for people when they're picking areas to innovate, especially if they're starting a new company, to like bear in mind the ratio of table stakes to like the opportunity for innovation. Because it turns out like being an email client that has a native GIF feature, you're going to be a long time building the damn email client before you even get to touch the native GIF feature. And, and like similarly, if you're in a larger company, it's worth appraising your own position for like how much of our stuff is now just standard and of all of our differentiators and all of our unique things. So for us, as you said, Paul, it's like the messenger, the inbox is maybe a performance feature, et cetera. Like we know over the passage of time, all of those things will inevitably either A, become table stakes or b we're gonna have to go back to the well and refresh them all over again to kind of refill their innovation and refill their market distinction thoughts <laughs> that was a good monologue, that was a good monologue. Uh, I, I, yeah like i'm just sitting here uh, standing actually nodding away there i'm nodding away one thing that that does strike about this which is something i think again people need to really think about you know like these days you know, people obviously say things like don't obsess with your competitors and, you know, so on. But there's a healthy, you need to have a healthy look at your competitors. But there's an interesting dynamic here, which is that if you have like a, a successful and growing startup and you have a bunch of incumbent companies and the kind of startups trying to displace the incumbent companies, take their market share, et cetera, there's basically a bit of a race going on. It's a very dynamic thing, but there's a bit of a race. The race is, can the incumbent company build the delighters so fast to make them performers and then down into table stakes faster than the startup company can build the table stake stuff they're missing. Yeah, yeah. I see. So, so right. it's a, can the incumbent just raise the bar so high that startups can't even get a, can't even hit it? Yeah, like if they can copy... So, so the, usually the startups have a table stakes gap, you know? Yeah. So like if, if you've got a... Like all the, all the examples you mentioned, you know, people were like... HR is kind of a great industry that I, I think we'll, we'll see a lot of really interesting companies come out over the next few years. And there's a lot of table stakes stuff there, security and compliance and all sorts of stuff like that. But that's not where they started, you know? They're kind of like trying to fast build and close the gaps to the incumbent so, so that when they say to a potential customer, hey, switch to us, there's no main big reasons not to switch, right? So they're trying to close all those gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, the kind of incumbent company that's under threat here is trying to build the differentiated features that the startup has, like the delighters in the Kano model. Yeah. Uh, and, and whoever does that fastest, in many cases, back to the speed point, whoever does that fastest will win. Right. It's, so it's like, 
Like it's the startup's ability to check the boxes on table stakes versus the incumbent's ability to find new innovation or to sorry to, to clone the innovations of the current startup is actually what the battleground becomes. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. A more recent interview next with one of the more thought-provoking and impactful guests I've ever heard on the series. Janine Uzel is the COO of the Wikimedia Foundation and she's using her position to drive a campaign towards knowledge equity. In this piece, we hear how her family background has inspired this goal. So I love storytelling. It's a big part of my life. I think I say in the piece that my father was a great storyteller and he was. And, um, you know, I, I am happy to admit that, you know, as I grow older, my father is, is deceased now, but some of his stories were true and some of them were not, but that's what made them all the more entertaining. Uh, some things I, I'm learning now, I'm like, oh, that's not really true. But, you know, he had a way of weaving the most wonderful ways to to share information. But for me, and, and also even for the culture that I'm a part of as an African-American, storytelling is how we how we learn about who we are. It's a, it's a source of pride. I, I sit at my Aunt Laura's dining room table in her home in New Jersey, and she tells me things about people that I don't know that I wish I knew, and even people that I did know, like my father. She is one of the only people that have known my father longer, even than my mother, because she grew up in the same Mm -hmm. town as him and married his brother. And so she's known my father her entire life. And so she can share things with me about my father that I didn't get to know, even though I had my father as a part of my life, even through into my 40s. But um, I, I just soak up, soaked up all these great stories. My father and his brother were recording artists and a part I of the great... Listened. I've listened have to you? some of them. 
fantastic. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Yeah, so there's there's quite a controversy, and their hit song is is called "Smoky Places," and um, you know it's a bit of a, it's a song about some infidelity. And uh, but I grew up singing this song, and I didn't know that it was about lovers meeting in the night. I just knew that. That was a song I grew up with. I knew how to play it on the piano and I knew how to sing it. And, uh, but, um, you know, he, uh, the great migrations is a big part of our culture as, as black people, right. And coming from the South and slavery and moving North. And some of us moved to California and Philadelphia, New Jersey, Florida, my family, you know, my father moved to New Jersey. That's where he, where he met my mom. And so these types of stories, I, I know the great migration, but when I hear my aunt Laura tell me about the train ride that she took when, you know, my uncles and my father, they went before them, ahead of them. And then they sent for the family and how they got on the train and dr- getting on the train from North Carolina and crossing the Mason-Dixie line and coming up north and getting off of that train and landing in the middle of this, like hearing her stories, that's my experience of the Great Migration that is so different than what's written on our Wikipedia page, which is a great historical fact. But now I have my own experience with it as well. And and so the family tradition of storytelling is something that uh, I love for myself and what I can share with my nieces and nephews and others. And um, that's so important to me. Even uh, if you never write a Wikipedia page, if you're never a part of our community, I hope that even people that listen to this will be inspired to go and share a story with someone, maybe in their family or, or in, their, in their community that helps keep a tradition moving forward. Yeah, you know, that, that was a part of your piece that really resonated with me. I, you know, I think there's a similar culture of storytelling and music in Ireland, certainly. And, you know, for, for many centuries, the only history that you would read in books was the history of the colonizers, was, you know, the British people that had come into Ireland or, you know, had been born there but considered themselves British. And it was only in the last century that that Irish history and and culture began to be written down or celebrated. So, yeah, you know, I, I it's just fascinating to me how something like Wikipedia can really become a resource for those unwritten histories that may have been forgotten about for some, you know, some fairly depressing reasons. You know, there's a line in your in your piece that says this was history, but it had never been written down, you know, and I think I, I studied history and so often we hear the expression history is written by the victors. But I do wonder, is it a fairer assessment nowadays to say that in fact, history is written by the privileged? Ah, uh, wow, that that hits me right in the gut because, you know, when truth stares you in the face, it's, it's both inspirational and then sometimes it makes people pretty angry. But I, I don't disagree with that because we know that knowledge, the history of knowledge and information is that it's in the hands, it's been in the hands of the privileged. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes, at least what has been in the past, the information that you would be exposed to is exactly what people wanted you to know. And it had their bias completely surrounding it. Even um, historically as slaves in African-American history, slaves were given a different Bible than, than their slave owners because the slave's Bible was very much stories of, of submission and control. 
to keep wow. them from having an experience of freedom. So there, there's an actual slave Bible and much of the content of the actual Holy Bible is taken out of that because it is not meant for them to understand the capacity of who they can be as people who serve a great and mighty God. And the, the thing about, about stories and, and knowledge is that people have a perspective about someone or something that they don't know anything about. They may have a perspective based on what they see on television or what they've heard from other people or what they read on Wikipedia. But that's not the only experience. And when those stories are not shared, then the things that may be written by those that have privilege, whether it's privilege to information, privilege to access to the internet, privilege to the ability to write as opposed to verbally share a story. There are so many things that dominate in privilege. And if you have that, and it gives you access to be able to communicate, privilege to be a part of a community where you feel safe and welcome versus, hey, I still want to be a part of a community, but I don't feel safe here, so I'm not going to do it. Anything that grants you access to privilege where you then have the ability to disseminate knowledge and information to people that has bias in it or that is just not a complete story causes other people to gain a perspective of someone that is incomplete. And so then you have a perspective about me or I have a perspective about you, your people, your culture that is incomplete. And that is what I mean when I say that access is so important, ensuring that we create an an access for everyone to be able to communicate, to share, You have to have access to health, access to knowledge, access to education. This is what creates a complete life. Lastly then, here's another fantastic excerpt from Des Trainer with our CEO, Karen Peacock, this time. In it, we hear a nice overview of the early intercom journey and why their initial mission has stood the test of time. We incorporated in San Francisco in August 15, 2011. And we came out of private beta 2027 to 2012, uh, where we announced that we'd raised a million dollars. That was like a you know complicated raise in that like it was like there was a lot of people involved in the round because it just wasn't like the you know owned it all the fundraising. I, I sat in on quite a few of the pitches at the time, but like or, or it certainly got the feedback. And the most consistent thing was that like people could see the problem but not the category, if you know what I mean. They're like, I, I, I can see what you're doing, but I don't know, are you a help desk or are you a marketing tool or what are you? You know, that was kind of like, does this, you know, I, I don't want to be like, you know, some of my best friends are investors and all that, but there's a temptation to like to pigeonhole startups into like, just tell me the category you're in so I can check a box and say this is a billion dollar category or whatever. And I think we, we at the time, our answer to all these things was just everything. We're going to like, you know, where do we, businesses and customers are going to talk. And even like you would reference, even as recently as our last board meeting, a version of this conversation still comes up, which is like, but surely you're not going to do it all. And like, as I said at the time, I was like, we've been 10 years at this trying to avoid this problem. But I think the actual answer might be, we just have to basically be a really good communication tool for businesses and customers to talk. And Yes, that means we have to be good for targeting marketing messages. And yes, it means we need to be really good at structuring thousands of inbound conversations and doing ticketing workflows and triage and all that sort of stuff. So that was like, you know, 
once we got the money, it was like immediately get out, set out to start like hiring. And uh, we built out, we were pretty Dublin heavy in terms of our hiring early on because it was, you know, all the money goes into product at the start. And we decided we wanted to consolidate product in Dublin. It was really not until like the Series A that we started thinking about marketing and, and more of, say, SF based, based hiring and then later on layered in sales. And if I keep going, I'm going to walk us through the entire company history. But so that's what was going on while you were, uh, while you were dominating the world with Intuit. Well, you were you were creating a whole new category and uh, building something incredible that I think absolutely every company, as you said, needs to talk to customers and having that that single path that kind of like punched through the wall that the that the internet had set up at least in early days was a was a huge deal. And one of the other things that I think that um, you and the the rest of the founding team did that was so brilliant was to set up a, a durable mission for the company. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the mission for the company and how that has or hasn't changed over the years and, and what that means to you? Yeah, um, part of the mission uh, was, the idea of a mission was inspired by one of our advisors at the time, which is Paul Adams, who obviously, as you know well, is our SVP of product here at Intercom. I'll say sort of where we started, I remember when we had this horribly small office and it was a really weird shape. It was really long and narrow. We had one wall where we put nine whiteboards in a row like, and we put them portrait style so you could write out a kind of like a manifesto. And we had this like a manifesto. We had this like free, nearly free office space in a dodgy part of Dublin on the north side. And like at the time, <laughs> Owen and I were anchoring the whole thing off this idea of relationships. In fact, some of our earliest customers will know the original intercom shipped with a relationship score that would tell you how strong a relationship you had with a customer based on how much of a back and forth you'd had with them recently. So it could tell you who who you'd grown a relationship with and who who was slipping away. And that that was one of the ways we were encouraging people to talk to their customers. But the idea was like. We, you know, why is talking to your customers important? Well, a large part of it is they have a unique insight into what you should do and all that. There's another part of it, which was what drew us in was this idea of building a relationship. And, and the, like another part of the founding story, which I won't repeat because I think it's been covered many times on, on our podcast and blog, was like we were working out of a coffee shop at the time witnessing a barista grow an entire global brand, simply one relationship by, at a time, literally like to a ludicrous degree. And his company, 3FE, has gone on to become incredibly successful. So we were anchored on this idea of we need to let internet businesses grow relationships. And why relationships? Well, it all comes back to like loyalty. Like you grow customers by acquiring them and you keep them through loyalty. And where does loyalty come from? Loyalty comes from a strong relationship. And where does a strong relationship come from? Frequent touch points and frequent positive interactions. And what do they look like? Communication. And like the antithesis of that would be a business that never talks to its customers and an entirely transactional relationship. So, uh, so, so that was where we started. We were heavily skewed to this idea of just relationships matter. And then as part of like, you know, being advised by Paul in different areas, and Paul at the time had done a heap of research, now kind of famous and infamous, which was about like social networks and how they grow. And I got, you know, his, he will, he won't appreciate me saying this, but the deck that he produced was like a leaked and it was like number one on Hacker News and TechCrunch and all that. It was like, it was the deck that underpinned the entire strategy for, for Google Plus. And then in, to, 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 add, to add fuel to the fire, Paul left for Facebook in the middle of all this. <laughs> so uh, anyway, enough about Paul. Um, however, one of the things he kept saying was like, great companies are mission focused. Yeah. It's not that they have a mission, it's that they're on a mission and the mission is the only thing they talk about. And when we realized well, what, what, what it was we were trying to do, was our mission is to make internet business personal. 
and we've 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 held on to that for ten years, and I really don't see it changing uh, in the near future. Anyway, I, I can't imagine us having to deviate substantially. The challenge with emission is obviously, as you know well, the, like, there's, you know, it's, it says a lot about a North Star, but it doesn't say anything about how you're going to get there. So, like, there's a lot, there's like, a, there's a lot left unsaid in such a simple statement. Perhaps the thing that is most interesting to me is I've never, like, I think nearly everyone, nearly everyone I've spoken to about our mission has always suggested that we take the word internet out of it. And in fact, I think we hired some branding agency at one point for like 50 grand to do this really like deep, messy bit of research, all of which concluded, we think your new mission, are you ready? It's to make business personal. And we're like, wrong. (laughs) Because I think the challenge I have is that when you say internet business, you're immediately zooming in in a really useful way that you don't get when you just say business. I think... We've always anchored in this idea of we're building for internet businesses. Uh, one of the things we've, uh, we, we added to our internal narrative at the time was that in the future, all businesses will be internet businesses. And, and that has like, proven to grow more true over time, whether it's like, I mean, COVID has only advanced it, of course, but like, even like taxi companies became Uber or like bookstores became Amazon. Like, but the future of, of business, in a sense, is, is 99% internet, like, with the exception of like, the tangible, like your local coffee store or whatever. Even them, you could argue, might have an app you'd order from like Starbucks do. So, um, so I think like when I think about the durability of the mission, I, I, I firmly believe it. Like we're here to let businesses and customers connect in a real way, like, like they do in, in the real world. And we're doing it for internet businesses, not for anyone. And the sense of personal has been really guiding to us from a product perspective because it's why you see faces in Intercom. I absolutely agree. And I think a great mission is... It's the kind of the, the horizon that you keep your eye on. And there may be times where you, you know, you tack different ways with the winds or you're up and down with the waves, but that, that horizon of where you're aiming toward is what your mission is setting for you. And I think that the, the mission that you developed is one that's evergreen. It's a, it is something that will continue to matter to us more and more each year. That's it for me from now, although you'll likely hear my voice pop up quite a bit over the next while. A huge thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of Intercom on Product for you. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.